This morning's scripture text comes from John chapter 11, verses 17 to 44. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. And let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can gather together as your redeemed sons and daughters, Father, as children of you. Father, all of us today as we gather here have varying uh, levels of consciousness of just how awesome and wonderful it is to be your child, Father. But wherever we are at today, I pray that you would meet us and show us a bit more of yourself. God, that you be glorified as we look into your revelation today and as we see once again your son. Father, I pray that you would change us and make us like him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So there are several of you here today who would qualify uh, as experts on good coffee. 
you've tasted some great coffee out there. You have opinions about that coffee. And you're the type of person who likes the natural process coffee sourced from micro lots in obscure, exquisite regions of the world, and go on and go on and on about you know your coffee. Okay. Well, let's say that I came to you, and I said, "Hey, I just discovered some great coffee." And of course, you, knowing your background in coffee, are nonetheless gracious towards me, and you say, "That's awesome, Joel. Tell me about this coffee." And then I proceed to tell you that I had purchased a can of Folgers, I had brewed up a batch, I added two parts cream to one part coffee, I added three tablespoons of sugar to my mug, and I thought it was wonderful. You'd be disappointed in me. You'd probably admit uh, that I had a good experience, but uh, I hadn't really experienced good coffee. And you'd have to really admit that I don't even have the experience or capacity yet to appreciate what makes coffee really good. Um, my appreciation for coffee might be so new and so incomplete that I might not actually like the real thing. All right, another example here. Let's say I came up to, to our friend Brian here. Brian knows a lot about barbecue. And I said, hey, hey, Brian, I just had some great barbecue. Awesome barbecue. I love barbecue, Brian. And Brian, of course, would be gracious and say, that's awesome, Joel. Tell me more about this great barbecue. And then I proceed to tell Brian that I just had a terrific McRib. <laughs> and Brian says, you, you, you like ribs? I said, no, Brian, I just had a McRib from McDonald's. Now, I don't know where the conversation would go from there. But quite obviously, while I say I love barbecue, it's clear that I don't know what good barbecue is. You can argue that I don't even know what barbecue is, period. Now let's say I come to you claiming to know and love Jesus Christ. And on the face of it, that is good news. Coffee and barbecue are trivial things compared to knowing Jesus. And you would rejoice with me in my realization that Jesus is important, but of course, as a faithful brother and sister in Christ, you'd want to know more. You'd want to know that Jesus is not just a passing fascination in my life. You'd want to know that I understand Jesus in exactly the ways he is revealed in the scriptures. You'd want to know that my notion of Jesus is correct, that it's complete, that it's transformative, that it's real. And in these first 10 chapters of John that we've looked at so far, Jesus has encountered all sorts of people, and each encounter has in, in, involved either belief or unbelief, or in many cases, it has involved incomplete belief. There have been the religious elite who have earnestly desired not to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. But then there's been the woman at the well, there's been Nicodemus, there's been the lame man, there's been the blind man. And all along the way, there have been these disciples who are constantly processing what Jesus is doing and what he is saying. And they're coming to understand more and more of who he is. And so to these people who you could say their belief is perhaps incomplete, it's maturing, it's growing, Jesus has consistently used metaphors about himself. 
metaphors that point to his essential place in the life of faithfulness to Yahweh. He said things like, I am the living water. We all need water, right? He said, I am the bread of life. We all need bread. We need bread and water to live. He has said, I am the light of the world. We need light or we will not find our way. And all of these metaphors suggest that belief in Jesus must be so much more than a surface acquaintance with him, more than even just a friendship with him. It must be a relationship of absolute and essential dependence upon him. Jesus doesn't simply make your life better. He makes your life essentially and permanently meaningful. So here in our text, we've got a bright spot in our text. Jesus says, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And in verse 25, what does he say? I am the resurrection and the life. So here again, Jesus is pushing those who are close to him to draw even closer and to recognize an essential truth about him. But of course, verse 25 is situated in the narrative on purpose. So let's jump in. Look at verse 17 with me. Jesus arrives in Bethany. Lazarus had been entombed for four days. And this is an important detail because Lazarus was unmistakably dead. Unmistakably dead. His, uh, his resurrection, therefore, which was coming, we know it's coming, was not a ruse. It was not a hoax. Bethany was near Jerusalem, which explains why the disciples exhibited so much fear. Jesus was persona non grata in Jerusalem. And the disciples were justifiably fearful for their safety. Verse 19, we see that many people had come to console Mary and Martha, brothers of Lazarus. And why so many people had gathered, we don't know exactly for sure why. Perhaps uh, this family was a prominent family in the area. But more importantly for understanding, our understanding here, there were many people gathered who would witness the raising of Lazarus. So the scene is set here. There are mourners in Bethany. Jesus arrives in Bethany. In verse 20, Martha goes out and meets Jesus. And she sort of speaks her mind. And what she says isn't void of faith. There is a recognition of God's power. She says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, Jesus, we know that you could have come and prevented the death of Lazarus. Now, Martha follows this up with an affirmation of Jesus' access to God the Father. Jesus can ask the Father what he what he wills. Martha is speaking truth. Maybe Martha wonders if Jesus will, in fact, entreat God the Father for Lazarus's life. She's throwing that out there as a solution. Now, you and I have Martha's instinct at times. We waver in our confidence that what happens to us is part of God's sovereign plan. We even sometimes exercise the same familiarity with God as Martha did. In our prayers, we tell God what we think he could have done differently even though we acknowledge he chose to act differently, but then often we have plan B in our minds. It's almost as if we feel compelled to suggest to God ways in which he might be able to cut his losses. That's wavering faith, isn't it? We don't doubt God's sovereignty, but we are honest that we can't see how it is working out in our situation. Now, 
the way that Jesus responds to Martha is pure gold. Jesus doesn't scold Martha. Martha is speaking truth. She's speaking all the truth she knows. She is affirming truth, even when truth is hard to affirm. But Jesus wants to take her further. He wants to shape not only her view of God the Father as the sovereign giver of life, but he's gently opening her eyes to the reality that he is life. In verse 23, Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha again affirms truth and she says, yes, Jesus, I know Lazarus will rise again on the last day. And she's right. That is truth. She's speaking truth. But Jesus then drops the big claim of verse 25. He says, Martha, listen. I am the resurrection and the life. Yes, the future resurrection is a true reality. It is foundational to belief in Yahweh. It is the hope that we cling to as we see death all around us. But Martha, Martha, look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus was teaching Mar Martha that the resurrection is real because Jesus, the incarnate God-man, the anointed Messiah, the seed of the woman Eve, the Lamb of God, is here. Jesus is directing Martha away from an assessment of her circumstances and their outcome. And he's directing her toward a deeper understanding of himself. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, these are distinct claims. This isn't just what we might call a sermonic flourish, where you say something and then you say another thing, and that a second thing means what the first thing meant, and it just sounds nice. No, these are distinct things. Jesus is the resurrection, but he's also the life. He holds life in his hands. When God breathed life into the first Adam, Jesus was there. Even as Jesus speaks to Martha, he is the incarnate God-man standing in time and place, holding life in his hands. Jesus is building Martha's faith. Martha believes in Yahweh. She believes in Jesus. She's a dear friend of Jesus. But she must be more than just dearest of friends with Jesus Christ. She must see Jesus as no less than God incarnate. No less uh, than the fount of life. No less than the author and practitioner of resurrection itself. And then Jesus goes even further with Martha. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die physically, yet shall he live spiritually. And actually, verse 26, everyone who lives, that is, everyone who truly believe, believes in the life-giving Christ, shall never die spiritually. That means when physical death comes, and it will come for us, when the last essential biological process of the body is snuffed out, we die there is still perfect, uninterrupted continuity of spiritual life for those who believe in Christ. That means when you die, when you pass away physically, there is not the briefest moment where you are not united with Jesus Christ as you experience that physical death. 
Now, this is an amazing, glorious truth. If you dwell on this long enough, you can see in it that there is a pathway to bravery in death. Brothers and sisters, you know what? If we dwell on this long enough, there's a pathway to bravery in martyrdom. We fear death because of the uncertainty. We fear the uncertainty of pain, the uncertainty about the experience of a disembodied existence, whatever transition that means. But we can face those uncertainties with boldness, with peace, with confidence when we know that, Jesus, that in Christ there will be no interruption, not even so much as a momentary hiccup in our spiritual union with Christ. Armed with this, we can face a terminal illness. We can enter into hospice care. We can brave the storm of dementia or cancer or ALS. Jesus is the resurrection and he is the life. Then verse 26, Jesus says, Martha, do you believe this? The question is there for us, Redemption City, do you believe this? And then Martha says, yes, I believe that you are the anointed incarnate son of God. It's an expression of faith. You see what Jesus did there? He took Martha in her grief and she gave him her ears and her heart and he took her further. Yes, Lazarus has died, but what is really important is that Jesus has come. Lazarus will be raised in the last day, but more important, Jesus, who holds life in his hand, who is himself the resurrection, is here. All right, verse 28. Martha lets Mary know that Jesus is there and that Jesus wants to speak with her. It seems almost as if Jesus wants a private conversation with Mary as he had with Martha. Maybe for the same reasons, maybe for the same sort of conversation. But Mary jumps up, she runs to Jesus, and in her running, the the well-intentioned mourners do what mourners do, and they follow Mary out. They're doing their job. And then verse 32, Mary, perhaps more visibly anguished than Martha is, she falls at Jesus' feet in what seems like a a very emotional response, and she repeats the same logic that Martha did. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Seems to be a common thought process in John 11. It says, if everyone in John 11 wishes Jesus had come sooner, there seems to be a a funny intuition that it's much easier for Jesus to abolish disease in a person, to halt death, to work healing, than it is for him to raise someone from the dead. And as human beings, we do this all the time. Even in our relationship with God, we hedge our bets. We don't ask for too much We look for paths of least resistance where we're most likely to be successful. But we should be careful here to judge Mary for her anguish. She's lost her brother. But it does appear, and get this, that through Mary's tears as well as the mourning of the mourners that accompanied her, it seemed to prevent Jesus from walking Mary through the same redirection that he had walked Martha. Mary is weeping. Jesus and Mary are surrounded by mourners who are mourning. And then the text says, verse 33, that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and deeply troubled. 
Now, what's going on here? What sorts of emotions is Jesus experiencing? It might be easy for us to jump ahead to verse 35, where Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, right? In Bible memory, you get a point real fast for that, right? Jesus wept. Sometimes we pull that down into verse 33, and we assume that Jesus was simply feeling a, a moment of empathy, deep empathy. But the words for moved and troubled in verse 33 are not words normally associated with empathy. Better sense for those words together would be one of displeasure. One even of anger or outrage. But why would Jesus be outraged? Let's piece it together. Jesus has already told his disciples earlier in the, in the chapter that what is happening to Lazarus is something that will lead to the glory of God. And the glory of God will be revealed in this situation when people, Martha, Mary, the mourners, the Pharisees, the citizens of Bethany, when all of these people are confronted with the reality that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is the resurrection and life. That's how God is going to be glorified. But such heights of glorious truth, like the truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, these often are not accessible to those who are mastered by grief and sorrow. Mary was in no condition for Jesus to, to guide her to a deeper realization of his person. The mourners were doing what mourners do. They were physically and vocally dwelling in the valley of the shadow of death, effectively vesting the death and passing of Lazarus with hopelessness. There's a reason Jesus experienced this emotion of frustration. Will the glory of God break through for these people? There's an important lesson for us here. Even in the deepest, darkest, and most grievous places of life, listen, don't stop your ears to the gentle teaching of Jesus. Martha, in her grief, in her grief, listened to Jesus, and it was then that Jesus opened her eyes to greater and more glorious truth about himself. In your sorrow, listen for the voice of Jesus. In your darkest moments, find your Bible and open it. Don't let the cacophony of voices in your head, don't let the wail of the mourners in your heart drown out the voice of Jesus. Jesus won't compete with those voices. He wants your ears. He wants your attention. He wants your heart. As Martha did, he wants you to affirm all the truth you know, all the truth that's in your heart. Get it out there. Affirm it. And then know that he wants to show you more. There's grace for this. Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 says this, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Strongholds of grief, strongholds of sorrow. 
And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And even our grief, our sorrow must be subjected to the Lordship of Christ. Brothers and sisters, God is so very much glorified in our moments of weakness. And let us covenant together as a family, never to let that become cliche. If you're somebody who struggles with depression, don't close off your ears to the voice of Jesus. If you're someone who struggles with regrets, anxieties, if you're someone for whom disappointments seem to roll your way with the same cadence as the sea waves against the shore. They keep coming and coming and coming. Listen, if you're a child of God and this is your experience, those things might just be a grace. They might just be the thing that opens your eyes and opens your ears to the voice of Jesus. It may be in those moments that Jesus can speak to your heart the glorious truth about himself that he spoke to Martha. But here in our text, Jesus is surrounded by a weeping Mary, the wailing of the, mor of the mourners, and he feels a storm of frustration deep in his person. Now, this is not the frustration of an elementary school teacher with a room full of, of children high on sugar that, that doesn't listen to him, okay? No, this is frustration at the ways in which the emotions of despair and despondency, when those emotions are not brought before the throne of grace, how those emotions can threaten hope. In your darkest moments, you will not learn anew that Jesus is the resurrection and the life if you won't listen to him speak those words to you. Then in verse 34, Jesus' frustration is channeled into gentle urgency. Where have you buried Lazarus? And they take him there. And then verse 35, Jesus weeps. Why did Jesus weep? For what did he weep? We don't know. We don't know precisely. Did Jesus for a moment suspend his knowledge of Lazarus's impending resurrection and weep in solidarity with others? Did Jesus weep at the blindness and the hopelessness that he saw that surrounded him? Did Jesus weep about the ugly reality of physical death? This crushing reminder that sin separates mankind from God? Is that what he weeped about? Maybe he wept about all of these things? We don't know for sure, but we know he wept. We know that the incarnate God-man is a faithful high priest. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Jesus knew what the overwhelming anguish of Mary felt like. Jesus knew what the feeble faith of Martha felt like. 
Jesus knew what the physical pain of Lazarus was like in his final moments. Jesus even knew the confused malaise of the hired mourners. What are we doing here? We're hired to mourn. Jesus knows. He knows it's hard and he's moved to tears. Many of you have had tears this past week. This past month, maybe the past few months. Many of you have mourned over devastating things. Many of you have grieved from low places. Men, many of you have mourned. Many of you have wept because you have felt not just the weight of your responsibility as men, but you've recognized your shortcomings in it all. Many of you have wept just because life keeps dumping hardships on you. And Jesus weeps with you. Verse 36 and 7, interestingly, the weeping of Jesus was interpreted in different ways by different people. Some believed it was the love of Lazarus for which Jesus wept. Had to be far more than that. Others dared to question Jesus' tears. They wondered aloud at why Jesus didn't come earlier. As though Jesus' manifest power was limited to devastating disease and reversing that, but was powerless against death. Folks, if people question Jesus' tears, if they put a spin on them, they will do that to your tears. Many of you have wept and you know nobody sees, nobody understands. But Jesus is not only sees your tears, he feels them. Remember what David said in Psalm 56? He said, God, put my tears in your bottle. And then he asked the rhetorical question, are they not in your book? And the answer is, they're in your book. God knows, God sees, God doesn't forget. Verse 38, Jesus again is deeply moved. The storm of frustration is there in Jesus' heart. He is in direct confrontation with the unbelief of those around him. Even Martha, even Martha, who seemed to come so far in her faith just a few verses ago. As Jesus commands the stone to be removed from the tomb, she sort of reverts back again to a stubborn practicality about smelly tombs. Threatens to prevent the revelation of the glory of God. But Jesus reminds her, he says, you will see the glory of God. And then Jesus, in a prayer which he admits is performative, it's meant to teach others. He thanks God for having already heard his supplication for Lazarus. And he calls for Lazarus and Lazarus comes out and God's glory is revealed. It's a glorious text. Just as Jesus promised, we see the glory of God. We've mentioned a few applications. We've got a couple more here for you. We've talked already about not stopping our ears from hearing the voice of Jesus, even in the midst of anguish. We've talked about um, how Jesus is our faithful high priest who weeps with us in our sorrow. But there's an even more foundational application. We need to take away from this text. And it is this. God is supremely glorified 
when we see Jesus for who he is. Seems straightforward. It is straightforward, but seeing Jesus for exactly who he is requires that God himself not only sharpen our blurry vision, but also that he startle us and stun us with the absolute essential necessity of Jesus himself. And God may teach us about this essential necessity of Jesus in our lives by bringing us through hardship. Many of us know that we've learned some things in life only because of the hardship God's gracious hand brought into our lives. It might take us losing a Lazarus for us to see the glory of Christ. We might lose things that we hold dear. But if in all of this we see Jesus more clearly, if we love him more fully, if we see with more unshakable confidence that he is everything we need, wouldn't that be a grace? If we come out of the hardships of life, professing as Paul did in Philippians, that for me to live is Christ, wouldn't that be a grace? Now, Redemption City, listen, we are surrounded by a cultural Christianity that in many cases does little more than use and abuse Christ to achieve a sort of nostalgic, refined, socially picturesque quality of life. But if all Christ is to you is a feather in your cap, if all he does is add a little color to your legacy of human achievement, if all he is is a quick, breezy chapter in your biography, your soul is in danger. But let's go further, because our text goes further. If Christ is only a friend, if Jesus is only a heading in your systematic theology, examine your soul. Christ reached out to Martha in her anguish. And he made a stunning claim about himself that all of us must labor in prayer to receive and to understand. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't say, I know how to raise Lazarus. And he made a blunt and brazen ontological claim. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Just as he has done so many times in the book of John so far, made similar claims about himself. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Now he says, I am the resurrection and the life. What ties all of these metaphors together? That Jesus is absolutely essential. What does it mean for Jesus to be absolutely essential? May God show us. May God show us through hardship. May God show us as we gather together. May God show us as we live 
in community as a body of Christ. May God show us as we celebrate the Lord's table together. May God show us through the scrapes and the bruises of life. May God show us as we encounter Jesus in the scriptures. May God be gracious to us and show us Christ. May he be essential. God, thank you. Thank you for this narrative of Jesus and his tender teaching of Martha, of Mary, of those around. Father, all of us must see Jesus for exactly who he is. And God, you are glorified when we do. Father, help us today to know how to lay aside every sin which so easily besets us. Father, may we be sanctified. May our eyes be opened so that we can see more clearly the glorious hope we've been called to. May we see Christ for who he is. May he be essential. May he be everything to us. In Christ's name, amen.